Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. All right. What'd you pick? I picked a story called Leaf by Niggle by J.R.R. Tolkien. Well, is there a section that you would like to read? Uh, Yeah, I'm going to just start at the beginning. There was once a little man called Niggle who had a long journey to make. He did not want to go. Indeed, the whole idea was distasteful to him, but he could not get out of it. He knew he would have to start sometime, but he did not hurry with his preparations. Niggle was a painter, not a very successful one, partly because he had many other things to do. Most of these things he thought were a nuisance, but he did them fairly well when he could not get out of them, which, in his opinion, was far too often. The laws in his country were rather strict. There were other hindrances, too. For one thing, he was sometimes just idle and did nothing at all. For another, he was kind-hearted in a way. You know the sort of kind heart. It made him uncomfortable more often than it made him do anything. And even when he did anything, it did not prevent him from grumbling, losing his temper, and swearing mostly to himself. All the same, it did land him in a good many odd jobs for his neighbor, Mr. Parrish, a man with a lame leg. Occasionally, he even helped other people from further off if they came and asked him to. Also, now and again, he remembered his journey and began to pack a few things in an ineffectual way. At such times, he did not paint very much. He had a number of pictures on hand. Most of them were too large and ambitious for his skill. He was the sort of painter who can paint leaves better than trees. He used to spend a long time on a single leaf, trying to catch its shape and its sheen and the glistening of dewdrops on its edges. Yet he wanted to paint a whole tree with all of its leaves in the same style and all of them different. There was one picture in particular which bothered him. It had begun with a leaf caught in the wind, and it became a tree, and the tree grew, sending out innumerable branches and thrusting out the most fantastic roots. Strange birds came and settled on the twigs and had to be attended to. Then all around the tree and behind it, through the gaps in the leaves and boughs, a country began to open out, and there were glimpses of a forest marching over the land and of mountains tipped with snow. Niggle lost interest in his other pictures, or else he took them and tacked them onto the edges of his great picture. Soon the canvas became so large that he had to get a ladder, and he ran up and down it, putting in a touch here and rubbing out a patch there. When people came to call, he seemed polite enough, though he fiddled a little with the pencils on his desk. He listened to what they said, but underneath he was thinking all the time about his big canvas in the tall shed that had been built for it out in his garden on a plot where once he had grown potatoes. He could not get rid of his kind heart. I wish I was more strong-minded, he sometimes said to himself, meaning that he wished other people's troubles did not make him feel uncomfortable. But for a long time, he was not seriously perturbed. At any rate, I shall get this one picture done, my real picture, before I have to go on that wretched journey, he used to say. Yet he was beginning to see that he could not put off his start indefinitely. The picture would have to stop just growing and get finished. So why'd you pick this one? Well, I didn't know what to pick. And I <laughs> I was thinking about it. I was like, you know what? I wish there was a short story by Tolkien, who was a very influential author in my life. And I was like, there is. <laughs> I read that story a long time ago. And I like it. And it's pretty good. And so I thought I'd suggest it. That's cool. Yeah. I didn't know that uh, he wrote short stories. But, uh, you know, by short story standards, it's still uh, pretty long. <laughs> compared to some of the stuff we write. <laughs> 
Still pretty Tolkien-esque. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he can hear his voice in this. And he's written some other stuff, too. There's uh, They probably verge on the novella. I didn't look them up how long they are, but Smith of Wooten Major is one, and uh, Farmer Giles of Ham is another story. Okay. I think those are longer than this, but like I said, I didn't actually look them up. Yeah, I mean, like length, actual length aside, part of his style seems to be being long-winded, <laughs> where this is some type of parable almost, you know? This is like a fairy story, a fairy tale. Yeah, yeah, like a fairy tale or um, a fable even. I don't know. I mean, there's like a clear lesson and it's like an extended metaphor and you kind of like get the point way before it's over. But uh, it's, it's almost like you can't help but bring it to life fully. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, he's got to go into the depths with it. Yeah, I felt like I really knew who this little niggle was by the end. Yeah, I, I know that a lot of people think Nig- uh, or will say that Niggle is Tolkien himself. Um, mm. I think he wrote it while he was writing The Lord of the Rings. So he's trying to figure it out, figure out The Lord of the Rings and give himself an excuse to work on it. And then yeah. work through some of his some of his issues by writing this story. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, go paint your tree, Tolkien. Go paint your tree. Yeah. When I started it, like, obviously, I was thinking of The Hobbit because all his little critters are the same. And especially this guy feels like a super little proper hobbit in his own world like Bilbo was and he's and Bilbo is also like so annoyed to have to go on his journey just like Niggle's like dude I got a lot to do I'm so busy I don't want to do this and they seem like similarly neurotic and like even the protagonist of their own story against their will so I was just like picturing Bilbo yeah it's very Hobbit-esque or Hobbit-ish or Hobbit-like yeah well and the other part of it that's felt familiar too is like that the people that are deciding where Niggle has to go for the next phase of his journey and like weighing how he's performed in this phase before he gets the next phase it felt like Gandalf coming and telling Bilbo that, that he has to do this thing you know it felt like this these other forces outside of Niggle that he wanted nothing to do with, but they happen to be the order of the world. So he's subject to them and he's so resistant. It's like he doesn't want to hear from authority. He doesn't buy into this whole journey at all. He's just so busy. He doesn't have time for this. Um, So it all felt... It, the like the whole uh, structure of the world felt kind of similar to well i mean tolkien you know he was a medievalist and he was very uh, he wrote a lot of stuff about um fairy tale fairy stories like kind of a defense of fairy stories so this a lot of his stuff is very much informed by the fairy tale tradition and so okay. this reads like a fairy tale you know even the the narrator has this fairy tale kind of affect to him you know mm-hmm. he addresses the reader you know you know the sort of kind heart like that in the first first part that i read he's like addressing mm-hmm. him and later on he'll the narrator will say like i don't know about that or this is the last you know has a very yeah. um personal kind of voice yeah. as if it's like you know the elder sitting in front of the kids selling him a story kind of thing and even that you know that kind of um long-winded grammatical structure the style where the sentences are long and extended there's parentheticals and extra commas and all kinds of subordinate clauses kind of is that that same style of speaking you know or it's just yeah you know avuncular well i liked the way that it was written because there are points during this story where it wasn't as if i was lost but it felt like things were taking a while to progress it's it's like like i said it it felt long-winded but it was that voice that like made me kind of stick with it and remain interested because it had this whole even though it's like a narrator like you said it's 
got this casual voice where it's talking to you, but it's also interjecting some level of humor. Like it's making light of all this stuff that Niggle has to go through, which was enjoyable because it also um, like as a narrator, when you're narrating a story, you know the ending, right? So we know the narrator knows what's coming, but he's maintaining the suspense too by keeping us kind of in the dark. He's like, isn't this ridiculous? You're like, yeah, it is. Uh, What are we getting at? (laughs) Yeah. He's, um, you know, a narrator that's faithful to the point of view of the character in certain ways. He says, uh, at first, during the first century or so, and then in parentheses, I am merely giving his impressions. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So even this kind of narrator who we know is like more or less is supposed to represent an embodied person telling us the story. We still get those, those kind of conventions of, you know, linear progression and, uh, characterization and all that kind of stuff that just goes into telling a story. Yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed the voice and it felt super Tolkien. Yeah, yeah, he has a he has a style. Yeah, you mentioned C.S. Lewis and I kept thinking of him throughout because, you know, Lion Winch of the Wardrobe and all that stuff was completely ruined for me when I realized when I was told, you know, that it was all Christian related. And uh, I was like, why can't it just be, why, why can't the lion just be Aslan or whatever? I don't even know these names anymore. But I, I remember like just being blown away by the story at its on its face. And then to be reminded that, you know, not only was I going to Sunday school and church every week, <laughs> but that like, you know, this escape fiction was also supposed to be like some, you know, metaphor shoved down my throat. Anyway, I still love the books, but I kept thinking, when I was reading Tolkien, I was like, is he as Christian as C.S. Lewis? Because this is like reeking of purgatory to me. Do you want to know the answer to that? <laughs> it sounds like a yes, but I don't know. J.R.R. Tolkien converted C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was an atheist. God, that's nasty. I hate that. They went on a walk. He came back a, a Christian. And nobody knows what was said on that walk. And there have been like attempts to reconstruct Yeah, nothing it, but... was said. They did mushroom. They did mushroom. <laughs> that's right. God. I think it's about stories because C.S. Lewis talks in, in his book, Mere Christianity, about the myth, uh, the Christian myth, and how I, I assume that he's reconstructing some of Tolkien's argument in that. You know, this Leaf by Niggle is very, you could read this as a direct metaphor, a direct analogy, a direct um, allegory, if mm. you will. But Tolkien said specifically, he said, I detect, well, let me get the quote. <laughs> Uh, and for the listeners at home, John is actually walking right over to his bookshelf. He's not Googling this. He doesn't Google. <laughs> he just gets it right off the shelf and he flips right open to the page. This is the, from the forward to the second edition of the Lord of the Rings. And when the Lord of the Rings came out, everyone has said, oh, it's an allegory for nuclear weapons. You know, the ring is a nuclear weapon. And um, Tolkien says uh, it is neither allegorical nor topical. <laughs> Its main theme was settled from the outset by the inevitable choice of the ring as the link between it and the Hobbit. And then um, he says, I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations and always have done so since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence. I don't think that he's writing allegory if he cordially dislikes it. Um, He says, I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory. 
but the one resides in the freedom of the reader and the other in the purpose domination of the author. So I've taken that to heart in all my critical, like literary critical work when I was, you know, doing PhD work. So I don't think of um, like when we do a reading to find the meaning of something that we're finding the meaning. It's always just an application. It's applying it to some preset structure that we bring to the text. So when people say that this is an allegory or this is a metaphor for X, Y, or Z, they already have that, that idea before they start it. They're applying it. So you can pull whatever you want out of this. Like I've always looked at it. I mean, sure. It has echoes of purgatory. There's, there's, I mean, he's a Roman Catholic. What are you going to do? But it feels, this is about an artist and being an artist in the world and like what it's like to live as an artist, to work on a really big project. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember writing papers in high school and just hating the whole concept of literary criticism because (laughs) we could all, we were all assigned to read, you know, the same book, but we all came back with different papers. It's like, so there's no answer. There's no answer. And it was just like this exercise in writing the paper and it didn't matter what you found as long as you found enough of it. Anyway, that aside, what I've always struggled with then is when we do read something and you think to yourself, this is blank. So in this case, this is a story about purgatory. Well, then even that, you know, I had that thought reading it. This is a guy that's dying. The journey is death. The difficulty is like setting aside your life's work so that you can die. And then I go and read like, which is like so fucked up. And then I go and read um, the criticism about it. And like, sure enough, everything I saw online about this story was talking about death and purgatory. And then I'm like thinking about it. And then you try to fit everything that you read into that context. And then more often than not, there's a lot of things that just don't fall into that context that you can't come up with the the parallel metaphor for. It's like, okay, well then what's the tree? What is the tree mean? And well, what does it mean that before he passes on to the other world, which is death, that him and Parrish are actually in a place that his, his painting come to life? What does that mean? And it's like, then it just ruins the story for me because I spent like 10 minutes afterwards trying to figure out why not all of this coalesced into my understanding of like Christianity and purgatory and yeah so Tolkien's right unless you hear it from Tolkien and he's telling you he's telling you it's not an allegory but people cannot accept that and then they go off to write literary criticism about his work and he's telling you you're wrong like we do this all the time in our own like workshops right where people bring something in and usually we try not to let the writer say much until the end which means that inevitably all of us give out these bullshit theories about whatever it is we read and then the writer chimes in immediately after and says actually and then everything falls apart right and and so the only solution is what you said which is that we all take from it what we're going to take from it and that's the art of it right however you want to enjoy it you can enjoy it but don't try to tell someone else what to think of it i think you pointed out the exact problem with most literary criticism is where where it all falls apart is the stuff they ignore the the critic will write this dense paper or book or treatise on whatever work of fiction and say, these are the things that line up with my theory of what this means. And then if you read the book or read the story, read whatever the the thing is, you say, but what about this? And what about this? And what about this? You didn't mention that don't line up with your thing. This is, you know, this is called, you know, confirmation bias. It's the groundwork for conspiracy theories and the way conspiracy thinking. (laughs) Yes. It really is because you have a theory and yeah. then you just look for confirming evidence and that's all. And you dismiss anything else. And that's how people wind up believing crazy stuff. So this is one of the reasons why 
I don't like the way literary criticism is is uh, done at the moment. Yeah, and, it, and it's such like a it's the opposite of fun to criticize anything that you're reading. I mean, when we do this podcast, we're not criticizing it. You know, we're like pulling it apart. But if the entire point of our podcast was to say like this is okay or this is not good or this didn't work, that's not as fun as saying like wow this really worked really well. And similarly, when you're reading something and you're trying to figure out like what it all means and where the author came up with all of it, well, well what What's this mean then if he's a Catholic? It's like, imagine if you had to write a story and you had to look at every sentence you wrote and every sentence you wrote and every idea you came up with had to support this overall takeaway about your story. It's not fun at all because <laughs> then you you can't even come up with stuff. You know, you can't be free to imagine and to put this story in particular into a particular box ignores like all the fun stuff it does, which for me was watching the painting come to life. And like that scene at the end where he decides to cross over to this other world because he's done with this painting. And then you find out that they rename the painting later on and it's like parish or it's uh what is it called? Like uh Nagel's parish or I don't know. But it's, it's this like cute effect and it yeah. has nothing to do with Catholicism. It has everything to do with Tolkien's imagination. Absolutely. I think there's, you know, as a writer, you want to follow the story's logic to find out what it can, what it can do and what it can say based on what you've put into it. You know, the characters you've created can the setting you're building, everything that goes into fiction can expand and expand to say more and more with and be, you know, coherent, co- consistent with itself. But if you're working towards an allegory and everything has to line up with that external framework, then you're gonna you're gonna limit yourself. Um, you're not gonna be yeah. able to reach for those those extra details because yeah. they're not gonna be able to match up. You're not gonna find that correspondence. Right. And like we all know. And by we, I mean me as of five minutes ago, that Tolkien (sighs) is extremely religious. So we're going to read into it. But that also ignores the fact that for as religious as he is, this air of purgatory or, you know, these elements of the religion can exist because they're major influences for him. But they're not. That's not the entire point of the story. Just like if you found out that like someone was a Nazi, like not everything is going to be about Hitler, but there's going to be like stuff in it, you know, that has to do with Nazis because that's what they like. Like whatever it is. (laughs) What an example. I don't know. I was trying to think of the opposite of God. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. That works. (laughs) Yeah. So like whatever it is, you're going to read into it. And then and then I also think I used to think this a lot when it came to like literary criticism. It was like if you didn't know who wrote it, what the hell would you have to say about it? Like if you weren't reading into the fact that this is Tolkien, where would you go? Like, what would you draw from? It's like anytime you read someone and he's like a gay writer and then you just assume like all the all the protagonists are also gay. It's like, why'd you assume that? Is it because of the writer? It's not fair. I I would really want to try hard um, to remain as anonymous as possible as an author. I'm doing that very well right now. And the key is to not be published. Yeah, that's right. That works. <laughs> but yeah, remain anonymous because then what? As much as possible, it'd be great to just say the story is the story. Just go take the story and think about it. Yeah. I have trouble with that too, because I do have an intention with it. It's just, I like I, when I write, I want to be understood for what it is. I don't want people to misinterpret my work, you know? Oh, I see. But with someone like Tolkien, it's like, he's telling you to just go just go with it and he he his stuff is like it's all about imagination so if your brain runs away with it i'm sure he intends for that to happen but then there's writers like me who 
I, I seek to be understood. And so I think usually my stuff is pretty clear, you know, there's not tons of room for interpretation, but if there is tons of room for interpretation, why do we have to pretend that there's one interpretation? Why can't we admit that the writer intended for it to be open-ended, you know, just like when a story ends on a cliffhanger and, and you don't know what the ending is. And then people get really frustrated guessing. And then they get even more frustrated when the writer says, actually, I don't know how it ended. It's like, what? what? No, no. No, literary criticism says there has to be an answer. Well, there's not. This guy's telling you there's not. I mean, to its credit, literary criticism has kind of opened up. It's it's job saving kind of theory here, but they say anyone can make a meaning. You know, the, the reader is the determiner of uh, of meaning for any any text. You know, that's just so they have job security, so they can continue to pump out meanings for texts and go crazier and crazier. But I don't think the story has to have meaning at all. Like you write a story, like when I, if I write a story, the meaning I want people to get is this is a character and this is the situation they're doing. And this is the emotion they're feeling. That's as far as it needs to go. As far as like my intention that I'm putting into or just the, the thing. And then you can take that and just like Tolkien, the applicability, you can apply it to your life and say, you know, I feel similarly in situations that are analogous to that. Or maybe, you know, this is how empathy is built. You think about other people and how they react to different things. And you say, it's interesting that that character reacted that way because I would have reacted this way. And what does that mean about me? And what does that mean about them? And what does that mean about people in general? And human condition. And that's where I think criticism is most interesting is talking about the human condition and like what it means to be human. Cause that's what fiction talks about. That's what literature talks about. It's like what it means to be human. This is what we want to know. That's why we read is to gain other experiences that we can't gain by walking out our front door. Yeah. I just, I read this and for as much as I was thinking about what I thought it was about, I was also just enjoying watching it unfold because I really didn't know where it was going to go. So it was, it was just a fun story to kind of be along for the ride with. And when you read something and you know, it's by someone like Tolkien, you know, that it's probably going to deliver pretty well and that it does. And yeah, I liked it. It's also like the whole purgatory thing. Well, I should stop calling it purgatory, but like all these weird phases where he was like buried underground for a while. That sucked. And then he was like <laughs> in the infirmary. I was like, what's wrong with this guy? Part of it felt like Handmaid's Tale where they like send some of these women to like just go dig holes. And you're like, why are you what? What's the point? And then like to see that he like got released and you couldn't really figure out why, except that he had like kind of learned how to <laughs> how to control his ADHD. Like that was like the grand lesson. I was thinking about this, you know, recently I, I was talking about how does everything need to be a story? You know, does it have to have like a key kind of moral decision at the end? And if this were, you know, a Catholic metaphor or something, you know, the, part of the Christian tradition is this idea of grace where as a human being, you don't do anything. You just, you don't earn necessarily grace because grace is part of the, the point of what grace is, is that you get something without having earned it, right? You get forgiveness even though you don't deserve it. So that's not much of a story, right? Because you're not as a character acting in certain ways to earn something or gain something, you know, and the Lord of the Rings has some of that too, because not really, because Frodo, you can look at Frodo as just having this like underlying faith in his endeavor and his doggedness is just an expression of that faith. So he's rewarded at the end for having faith. You know, when Gollum falls into the mountain, it's like, you know, the forces of the world or God knew that he wouldn't be able to throw it in, but as long as he had the faith to get the ring there, it'll get taken care of, right? In this one, Niggle comes to a realization at the end. He says, what I need is perish. 
there are lots of things about earth, plants, and trees that he knows and I don't. This place cannot be left as my private park. I need help and advice. I ought to have got it sooner. And that's like the key moment that turns everything around and kind of like makes, you know, Niggle's tree into to grow into what it could actually become and become what it what it did become. And that's not necessarily that's it. That's a bit of self-determination, a bit of agency that's uh, that's in this story that I think um, that makes it more of a story than merely a uh, I don't know what you call not a story. <laughs> like a situation or a premise. Yeah, maybe a premise or, or even just, you know, something that is more more purely that Christian allegory. Yeah, where it's like a lesson. Right. We talk all the time about characterization or driving a story forward. And it always has to do with like the character making choices, like you say. So here's a guy that has a realization, which is a change. And yeah, he's a dynamic character, which makes for a story. Yeah, yeah. He does have that change. Yeah, I don't really I couldn't tell, like I said, what the point of like his punishment was because it felt like he was being punished or like taught some kind of lesson. It seemed like what he learned, like we said, was to kind of focus on this craft. And he he learned how to like manage his time they kept talking about and how to like get things done. And it was almost like before this experience, he lived right next to Parrish. He knew about Parrish and his expertise, but he was so wrapped up in feeling like it was just him and his work and everyone else was like a distraction. It's almost like the realization was not just that he needs Parrish, but that like when he took his head out of his ass and he started doing (laughs) other things other than the painting, he realized that he wasn't the only one that was like kind of toiling away at their own hobby like he talked about himself in this like self-righteous way that like not only was his work most important to him but like nobody else understood it which meant that nobody else was doing anything like it and it's true that he was the only painter but Parrish was an expert and Parrish probably he did Parrish felt similarly about Niggle's work he was like this dude is painting all fucking day can I use his stuff for my roof and they're like yeah that makes a lot of sense uses use the canvas for your roof and Parrish doesn't we don't really get as much sense of like whether Parrish had this kind of revelation about Niggle, but you can kind of assume that maybe part of what they are all learning is that other people exist and have important hobbies and not just hobbies, but entire worlds and consciousness, like individuals have their own personal shit that they're going through. (laughs) And Niggle was, Niggle was like the hermit, you know, he's like, leave me alone. I got a lot to do. Yeah. He got too wrapped up in his own work or his own vision, artistic vision. I felt like um, some of this, like you called it purgatory and punishment. But when I was reading it, you know, not with a Christian background, trying to think of it and, you know, as it's written, (laughs) that it's felt like Kafka. It almost felt like a, uh, you know, like bureaucratic nonsense, you know, oh, you have (laughs) to take this journey. You have to do this. And, you know, you didn't register with the builders uh, guild or whatever, whatever it was. Different things like you, he's like all this good canvas that should have been used for your neighbor's house instead of being wasted with this. And then none of this other stuff would have happened if you had fixed it right away and this costs too much money. And there's all those little details that come across. It just felt very bureaucratic and kind of like a, uh, you know, the artist versus the bureaucracy kind of feeling, which, you know, like to your point about Parrish, he's going through the same thing. He knows he has to deal with that same bureaucracy that Niggle's dealing with. And it, it affects him similarly. Like he wants to grow potatoes or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, when you when you said like I I read this without a Christian background like informing all your interpretations of it and everything's felt meaningless. Uh, <laughs> it's not quite. Well, <laughs> well, that's what I took from it, and 
I'm laughing because like Christianity is to the human experience what literary criticism is to the original work. It's finding meaning where there isn't any. It's assigning meaning to every stupid thing that happens to you. Everything that happens happens for a reason. Everything is for a greater purpose. Everything is meant to be. What's meant to be will be. Like you have to go on this journey. I know it sounds like really stupid. You have to die. But guess why you have to die? Because you get to go to heaven, right? As long as you believe that, all the bureaucracy is worth it, right? No, it's (laughs) not. No, it's not. And then they send they send Niggle and Parish to purgatory and they beat it out of them. They're like, listen, if you don't buy into this Catholicism stuff, you're not going on to the painting world. And they're like, we buy it. We buy it. And then they go forward. Yeah. So that's my life lesson today. <laughs> that's probably why I hate literary criticism. It's like, no, this isn't what it means. Everything's meaningless. And then you die. That's right. <laughs> Universe is godless and meaningless. Come on, guys. Yeah. Very critics. Life oh, sucks. Wow. And then you die. Yeah. <laughs> I all knew that. Do you dare have a takeaway from this? Well, I don't know. I guess my takeaway is to pursue a uh, an artistic life. <laughs> you know, just I want to live like not like Niggle, obviously, but like kind of have that lesson of being uh, diligent with your work. I don't know if that's a lesson I'm supposed to take away from it. That's what I'm, I'm going to take. Well, yeah, I don't know what the life, I have no clue what the life lesson is, but I like that, you know, even if he had to go through something, some kind of hardship or realization, he was still rewarded by being able to achieve his vision. Like there was nothing wrong with wanting to do this work. It was still good and worth it and beautiful in the end. So that was cool. Yeah. Despite the bureaucratic nightmare. Yeah. That's why, you know, I don't think the lesson was don't do your art, which was cool. Yeah. I don't think Tolkien would come to that conclusion. No, of all people. Right. <laughs> he right. spent his yeah. whole life creating uh, mythology and languages. Yeah. And but even like the people that were putting uh, Niggle through all these phases and these steps, like that wasn't their goal either. It wasn't like Niggle triumphed. It was like they were trying to help him help himself. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. The story was so weird to me. It was a weird little tale. Yeah. Because it felt like a very small, quiet story, like basically two characters but extremely long winded. And like we talked about this, like removed narrator who, like you said, is almost telling the story like hundreds of years later, whatever it is. I don't know. I guess I'll just kind of like revisit what we talked about with the confines of literary criticism. Like when you're reading something and when you're writing something, don't worry so much about the singular takeaway. If you are worried about the singular takeaway, because I've been there, I feel like that's usually my goal is to have like at least one like overall effect that I want to achieve, right? Because if you don't achieve an overall effect, like you probably did it not as well as you could have, right? You want some emotional response, but an interpretation is different. An interpretation can be whatever. The emotional response, though, you probably want to nail. I think the takeaway, though, especially after you read the Tolkien quote, is just kind of like, let yourself have fun while you're writing. Don't keep thinking that you need to hit some theme over the head. I hate the stuff that's like so deliberate. Like, let people interpret a little bit. This is like advice for myself, too, because sometimes I feel like I am beating a dead horse with some stuff. But there's a, it's okay if there's like a little wiggle room. Yeah, I like that. You know, you want to get the fiction right. You want to get the story right. What You know, the thing that creates that emotional impact that we were talking about in previous episodes. But like whatever a reader does with it, you can't control that. You really can't. Like what, right. what are they going to... 
like if we borrow Tolkien's words, like what are they going to apply it to? What is the yeah. applicability in their lives to your little story? You can't know that. You can't you can't write for every possibility under any circumstances because right. there's too much experience in the world. So you just have to make sure the story is right and you get the story right. Well, thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at our website, NaplesWritersWorkshop.com. And for daily writing tips, industry news, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop.